And welcome everybody to another Smart Money Circle show. I'm Adam Sarhan. With me today is Brian Frank, who's president of Frank Funds and portfolio manager at the Frank Value Fund uh, with approximately 200 million assets under management. Brian, thank you so much for taking the time and coming on the show today. Thanks for having me, Adam. It's great to be here. So, Brian, before we jump in, as we were saying before we hit record, congratulations. My hat's off to you. I completely uh, love and respect what you've built over the years. You started in 2003. I started officially in 04, but I've been doing this since the 90s. And I absolutely, I stand in awe. I love what you built. So, number one, congratulations from my heart. Well, thank you very much. It's It's been a battle, and we're still battling, but... Um... It's great to be here. <laughs> hey, you're doing a great job. All right. So um, I always like to begin, Brian. Can you tell us a little about your story and how you got involved in investing and how you got to where you are today, please? Yeah, definitely. Um, I've always wanted to do this. I, I visited the floor of Solomon Brothers when I was six years old. I grew up in New Jersey and we took a field trip into New York City and I saw these crazy traders yelling at the phones. And for some reason, as six years old, I was like, that's what I want to do. This this seems really interesting. Um, I've always loved numbers. So then I went to NYU. I studied finance and accounting at the Stern School of Business. And while I was there, I got a job at a private equity fund called Lightyear Capital. I was run by Donald Marin, who was the founder of Payne Weber. So it was a small place, but some really heavy hitters there. And I learned a lot, you know, being the low man on the totem pole. And I intended to actually go work um, for a fund company on Wall Street, but um, coincidentally, my grandfather actually sold his business at the time, and he had a bunch of money that needed to be managed. And for whatever reason, I convinced him to give me a very small slice. And this was the late 90s during the, the tech bubble. And I always gravitated towards value investors and looking at the business behind the stock price. So I took his small account and put it all into value stocks. Um, none of the high-flying tech stocks that were going on in the bubble. And sure enough, when the bubble burst, unfortunately, his advisor lost a lot of money on the other part of his account. But um, you know, a bunch of money came over to us and kind of organically, I started managing a family office. I didn't have a lot of high net worth clients or anything like that, no avenue to sell. So I started a mutual fund uh, called the Frank Value Fund in 2004 to get a public track record because it's audited, it's on Morningstar, you get distribution, all that stuff. Mm -hmm. It was a simpler time. It was before Sarbanes-Oxley and all the costs came on and the whole passive push. Yeah. Um, but we managed to grow that. And now we're three funds, um, Frank Value Fund, Camelot Event Driven Fund, and the West Hills Core Fund. And uh, we're we're still fighting. We're still here. I love it. Well, congratulations. That's a great story. Now, you fell in love with this. I'm fascinated with the, the early part of people's stories because the childhood memories, it's like an imprint, it leaves a really big imprint. You fell in love in investing when you saw the energy, the excitement on the floor, Solomon Brothers yelling and screaming, the jumping up and down, kind of like <laughs> the movie Wall Street, if you will, or any of those kind of movies that, that show it. Did you, and you're now a value investor, did you gravitate towards value investing because of that's what appealed to you? Or, or why not growth investing or technical investing or quantitative, why value? What part of the, what hooked you on that, if you will? I think Buffett would say it's it's a personality thing. You know, um, I, I'm the kind of guy that I get really upset if I go out to dinner and it's just a little bit too expensive. You know, it's yeah. values what you get and you feel like someone's pulling something over on you if you end up overpaying for it. And also all the fundamentals of it make sense to me too. You know, looking for low price to earnings and price to book value and doing your work and knowing what you own and it really just fits, I guess, with who I am. And the returns don't lie either. You know, value investing 
is a proven long-term record going back a hundred years to Benjamin Graham's time. So it's hard to argue with success and, and logic. So yeah, I love it. Sense. Yeah, I love that. So Brian, let's talk about the investment strategy, if you will, for listeners that aren't familiar or don't understand exactly the, the nuances of value investing. Can you give us a um, an overview, please, about your investment strategy? Yeah, absolutely. I would say in general um, at Frank Funds, with all of our different funds, we we really look at what everyone else is doing and why they're doing it and try and take advantage of that for whatever reason. So maybe there's you know, a large cap growth fund that um, there's a company that stopped growing and they just are forced to sell it. Or there's a company that becomes small enough that it gets kicked out of the S&P 500, or maybe it's doing a spinoff like 3M is doing. And maybe those smaller companies don't belong there, but there's some forced selling going on. So at the core, we're we're looking for what passive investing and ETFs and all that complex um, misses. And that's that's been a major advantage for us. So more specifically on my fund, the Frank Value Fund, um, it's a mid-cap value fund. So I'm looking for companies about two to 50 billion in, in market cap. And I, I just look for great value. Um, and it doesn't necessarily have to be a slow going company. That's kind of my little twist on value. If I can buy a growth company, for a lower price to earnings ratio than normal, I will buy that growth company because that's that's value. Value you're getting something there um, for for cheap, and I try and build a portfolio of twenty to thirty stocks. Um, we try and generate long term gains. Sometimes we generate short term, which is great, but um, generally we like to grow with the business and follow earnings over time. And we focus on the downside as well. So we look at balance sheets. That's my background in private equity, looking at enterprise value and those types of things, because debt can definitely get you into trouble. So um, over time, I've had low downside capture, a lower beta, like all those correlation type metrics have been great for us. Um, and we've also were up last year. So it's it's starting to really work on the upside as well now that we've gotten out of the end uh, the the frenzy of 2020 and 2021 growth stocks wow well th- that's awesome congratulations for being up last year in a very difficult environment so you use primarily pe which is a price to earnings ratio to find stocks that are undervalued and then you look at other metrics that help you justify or determine whether or not those company those businesses i guess the business itself, not the stock, if the business is undervalued. And if it happens to have a growth component, hey, great, it's an undervalued growth stock. If not, then so be it. You want value. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it, it, we look at other metrics besides PE, but I like to talk about PE because everybody knows it. Um, but generally, if you're going to buy a slow growing or a no growth business, you probably shouldn't pay over five or seven times earnings on a PE ratio. But yeah, if you if you end up with growth there, maybe you could pay 10 or even 15 times if it's a spectacular company. So there are differences between types of companies um, uh, of the types of valuations that we're willing to pay. And it just, it takes a lot of legwork um, and you need to see what the analysts are expecting, kind of like what's baked into the into the stock price there. But things move, especially in, in small and mid-cap land where I am. Um, there are lots of things on my screen you know, last year, everybody was worried about recession. I was worried about recession and there was no recession in the next 12 months. Right. Um, but in the in the ensuing 12 months, there are lots of small caps that are down 50 plus percent here. Big time. Yeah. And you got to look at why are they're down? You know, is the growth disappearing? Did they lose their competitive advantage? 
Or is it something as simple as maybe there's a large seller, you know, there's an institution that's giving up on it. Or like I said, they got kicked out of an index or something. And that's kind of the world we live in today with more than 50% of money being passively indexed. There's not a lot of guys like me left. So stocks tend not to move on fundamentals. So you have to adjust and, and figure out what's actually moving the stock. Yeah, no, I love that. That's so powerful. So let's talk about risk. How do you handle risk? And what are some mistakes you see people make with respect to risk management, please? Um, we we handle risk by looking at the risk to the enterprise, like the whole business. So stock going down 20% definitely gets my attention and we reopen the case and we make sure there's nothing fundamentally changed. Um, and more often than not, it's it's just market fluctuation. So I approach risk of, is this company going potentially bankrupt? Um, is there a lot of risk on the balance sheet? So we definitely avoid leveraged balance sheets. Uh, and then I also approach it from a quality perspective. Is this a company that can fend off its competition because they have a great brand name or because they're entrenched or their customers love them or something like that? So it's definitely twofold on the on the qualitative side. And, and mistakes that I see people make in terms of risk management is falling in love. Um, it, it's great to fall in love with your wife or your significant other but not necessarily with a business. Um, I, I just actually sold a business called uh, Cardinal Health in our mid-cap value fund um, that I love. I think it's a fantastic business. It's an oligopoly. There's only three businesses that do uh, distribution of pharmaceuticals in this country, but the numbers said it was time to go. And, and that's, I think, hard for investors to uh, to realize. They'll end up holding a stock too long. Um, we often talk about you know selling at the wrong time. Um, that can also mean selling too late. You know, you've, you've been with this company way too long. You've gotten your return, but now the numbers don't make sense and it's time to go. Interesting. So you sold Cardinal Health, CAH as a ticker, because it went up too much and now it's overvalued. It's no longer an undervalued stock. Or did you sell it for other reasons, just out of curiosity? Nope, for those reasons. We sold it because um, it, I would say it's fairly valued. I don't think it's overvalued. Um, yeah. But when I bought it, it was, you know, 30 to 50% undervalued. And we almost doubled our money on it, but the fundamentals didn't double. So when the stock price doubles, but your earnings don't double, yeah, it's getting more expensive. That's a that's a risk from a valuation perspective. Yeah, so no, it's great when the company grows with its fundamentals or the stock price grows, but a lot of times, you know, in Wall Street, we tend to overshoot and get excited and extrapolate earnings out to infinity. I love that. So let's talk about the actual mechanics of my value standpoint. I never understood how you, I get the overvalued component, but what about when things go down? You said it drops 20%, it has your attention. So then what do you do? Do you look at it and say, hey, listen, it, what if there's a mismatch, my question between the stock performance and then your assessment on the proper value? And if the stock goes down too much, do you eventually just you know blow out because it's just too much from a risk standpoint? Or do you just hold on to it saying, hey, they'll come back because it's, un, it's even more undervalued now and then buy more? I, the answer is it, it depends. And it kind of goes back to those mistakes that investors make. I, I think if a stock's going down much more than 20% on you on no news that you can detect. Yeah. Um, the the humility I've learned over the years in this business is maybe I missed something. You know, it's not the market that missed something. It's probably me. So uh-huh. yeah, we do we do have some risk controls where if it just goes down 25 plus, we'll start reducing. Um, but really digging into the research because like you said, it could be a spectacular opportunity. Maybe the market's selling for a non-fundamental reason. If I can find that non-fundamental reason and be pretty sure, then that's great. I, I had a small cap last year that transitioned their business from international to US. Mm-hmm. And one of their major holders was an international fund. 
So they just had to sell. Mm -hmm. And we saw that selling. And I was on the other side of every single one of those trades buying what they were selling. And it ended up being a spectacular winner for us. So it's great when you can find the reason, but if you can't, maybe the reason is you and it's time to reassess. No, that is so, so incredibly powerful and so true too. Um, Okay, beautiful. Next question. What are some timeless lessons you've learned along the way that you'd like to share with the audience? So I I had a tough period of my career from about 2018 to 2021, where value investing just wasn't working anymore. Mm -hmm. So in the first 10 years of the Frank Value Fund, we outperformed the S&P after fees, which is every manager's dream. You know, I I did something, I did it with less volatility. um, I really added value. But um, the next four years after that, I was doing anything but adding value. We were flat and the market was just going up every day, it seemed. And... um, what I've learned over that period is how you need to focus on, or I need to focus on how does that value actually get released? So we've all heard the term value trap. I think there's a lot more value traps in this modern market structure than ever before, because I see cheap companies out there that are doing fine, um, but they just stay cheap forever. Mm -hmm. And I think that's because of the passive component. You know, so much of the money is just going into these indexes, um, you got a great cheap stock over here, or you have, I don't know, maybe a 5% T-bill over there, but those 60-40 funds aren't rebalancing. You know, Those S&P 500 funds aren't going to buy my cheap stock. So we focus much more on catalysts now. Is yeah. that company paying a large dividend that at least we get paid to wait? Is that company buying back stock or is this an acquisition target? Like, How does that value get released? And that's been a big lesson I've learned over the last few years. Is there any way to quantify that? Yeah, certainly. Um, A lot of times management does it for you. Um, They'll say, you know, we're completely undervalued. Here's what we're going to do about it. And then from a quantify perspective, um, we look at something called shareholder yield. So we'll add the dividend payment to the share buyback. And I have one company right now where that number is over 15%, meaning you add their dividend to the the percentage of shares they're buying back. 15% of their capital is coming back to me every year. And that's that's a rare thing, and and that's a recipe for a, a a rocketing stock price, which it's been doing lately. We love that. So, next question: timeless mistakes that you've made or you see people make, and how do you avoid them? Um, well, definitely the falling in love thing. Um, I I try and avoid that by just letting the process and the numbers speak. Um, okay. and probably another timeless mistake I would say is following the crowd. Mm-hmm. So. Um, Barron's actually wrote an article on our little fund company. Um, last year, only 2% of funds were up and are also up this year. And we have two of them. It was the Frank Value Fund and the Camelot Event Driven Fund. And thank you. And I think the reason that we were able to be up is we didn't follow the crowd. So um, after COVID, uh, both of those funds, Frank and Camelot, ran into the energy space. And people were running out of the energy space screaming, you know, oil went negative. It just looked like a total disaster. But doing a lot of research and understanding the macro that was going on behind that, it was a spectacular opportunity. And that's what drove our performance in 2022. So don't follow the crowd. The crowd can often be wrong, um, but also don't be arrogant. Sometimes the crowd is right. (laughs) Got it. Uh, That's really, really powerful. Time. uh, What's the best piece of advice you'd like to give to the audience or your 30-year-old self? Um, turn over more rocks. The, the more things I look at, 
um, the easier it is to avoid those bad ideas. You don't, you know, if you end up, if I end up researching something for a week or two and we end up not buying it, it really feels like a big waste of time. But that's that's pressure you want to get away from, and I think you get away from that by just looking at more stuff. Um, when I find myself complaining about the Magnificent Seven and how great Apple and Amazon are doing, and you know why aren't my small caps going up? I go look at Apple and Amazon and I do evaluation on them and try and figure out, you know, would I actually buy it here? And if I know why not, it's a powerful thing to have, I think, in your toolkit as an investor. I love that. And then question about the value investing for people that aren't familiar. You said there's other metrics besides PE. Would you mind sharing some of the things that you look at or value investors should look at just to help educate the audience about value investing, please? Absolutely. I could talk about value investing all day. Um my main metric is enterprise value to EBITDA. So it's slightly different than PE because enterprise value includes the debt on a company. A lot of small caps that are getting posted on the internet right now, people say, look at this, it's a PE of seven. You know, It's a great buy, but it's a billion dollar company with a billion dollars of debt. Right. And we're in an environment where refinancing that debt could be impossible and cause chapter 11. So enterprise value will save you there. Um, mm -hmm. I like to look at EBITDA because the E in price to earnings is net income and there's a lot of ad backs. That's my accounting background coming, coming through there. And I don't use companies adjusted EBITDA because that's a lot of lies are there. They include stock buyback or sorry, stock-based compensation and things like that. So come up with your own metrics where you can actually find the truth. <laughs> I love that. That's so powerful. And then again, since value is subjective, like beauty, it's very subjective. What, how do you teach people or explain to people what whether or not something's undervalued or overvalued? And then yeah, that's the first question. And then I'll ask you a second one in a second. Yeah, um, the way that I do that is quantitatively. So I will look at the competition in the space. Um, who are their competitors? What are the valuations on those? And again, it's not a PE. I'm really going deep on those companies and trying to find you know the, the valuation metric that I think is appropriate. And then the other thing I would tell people is look at history. Um, margins fluctuate a lot. That's like the percentage of every dollar of sales that the company captures. Um, it can be, you know, you can have a 10% margin, you can have a 30% margin, and the same company can have those different margins over time. So that wildly changes all the valuation metrics. So that's my number one piece of advice is look at history. I'll go back through the last two recessions on these companies and see how they evolve over time. Cause you also need to know what you're buying. So in my fund right now, I'm all defensive companies because um, cyclicals are expensive. I think we're at the end of the cycle and those earnings go down a lot in a recession. Whereas if you're in a defensive company, you can you can weather that and um, the earnings stream will stay true during a recession. And no, that makes perfect sense. And then my second question would be from with respect to value. And again, stock goes down. When do you get out? Do you if you wait for earnings to come out and negate the thesis, or do you wait you just to 20, 25% and then you blow out no matter what? Are there other things you look at? And if you can speak a little bit to that, that'd be much appreciated. So right now um, in the fund, I, I have one of these situations I'm dealing with right now. So I'll give you that example. Um, this particular company, um, as soon as we bought it, started falling like a stone <laughs> and uh, it's down about 25%. So we cut our risk in half. Um, just arbitrarily, there's nothing fundamental going on with this company. They actually have a new CEO, which I think will be a catalyst for change, but he hasn't said anything yet publicly. So of course, you know, Wall Street doesn't like that. 
So the next step is now wait for a fundamental event and that event is earnings. So for me, Christmas comes four times a year. That's when these companies report earnings and I actually get fundamental data. Um, We'll see how bad it is at this company. And we already knew it was bad. (laughs) That's why we're getting this valuation. Um, But if they're less bad than normal, the expectations are so low that you could see a massive increase. So if the fundamentals are better than expected, we might actually increase our position back to full size. Or if it confirms what the street is saying is, no, this this company is terrible, you know, things are bad, then we'll take the loss. Okay, gotcha. And then what about on the upside? When you have a stock that you have a big profit on, it doubles on you, and you arbitrarily, do you arbitrarily sell it if it's up X, let's say 100%? Or well, maybe yeah, that's the first question. No, I think that's a mistake that people make, getting the double and getting out. Um, Stocks can run a lot farther than that, especially if you've done your work and it's a great business and transition or something like that. So to me, it's all about valuation. So to go back to PE, if I buy something at 10 times earnings, I think it's worth 20 times earnings. Um, The stock doubles, but also the earnings increased a lot. It's not going to be at a 20 PE. So just wait, let it work for you. Okay. So would you reassess that assessment or sorry, your... You think this PE should be 20 based on your analysis. As those Christmases come every, you know, every quarter you get earnings, do you adjust your analysis and your estimates or do you still stay to the original one when you first entered? Yeah, we can even change our, our upside target there. So if things are going better than we expected and we think it deserves a premium, um, Apple is probably the best example. I bought Apple in 2011, I think. Uh, I don't know. It may, it may have been a 10 PE and as hard as to believe that is. Um, and fundamentals kept getting better. The earnings kept growing and our upside target was like 15 times earnings. Luckily we held into the twenties, still, still sold it a little bit too early now that it's a 30 PE, but yeah, you can adjust your upside target if your company is, uh, is doing something spectacular. I love it. I love it. Well, Brian, thank you so much. Can you give us, before we wrap up here, just an overview of the Frank funds and some of the, uh, the funds there and the strategies associated with each fund for the audience? Yeah, absolutely, Adam. Thank you for the opportunity. Um, They can go to frankfunds.com and check out all three funds. So we have the Camelot Event Driven Fund, which is, um, they they focus on corporate events. So it's a company in transition, a new CEO, an activist investor, and even distressed investing. Um, And they they really try and give low correlation and protection on the downside. Um, There's the Frank Value Fund, which I've spoken ad nauseum about. It's a mid-cap value fund. Um, have a long track record and a tough period, but we're coming out of it. And um, the last couple of years have been pretty great for us. And then we have the West Hills Core Fund, which is actually an index fund that sells calls and buys puts. So um, it's an investment in the S&P 500. But our whole thesis on passive investing, the more market share they get, we think the stocks get more volatile, actually, not less. And West Hills takes advantage of that by basically selling volatility. And um, they they try and give you about 70% the performance of the S&P and, um, or more with only about 70% beta in the downside there. So West Hills was down a lot less than the market last year, but they're capturing a lot of the upside this year. Wonderful. So, and they can, people can learn more about that at frankfundswithans.com. Is that correct? That's correct. Beautiful. Well, Brian, thank you so much for coming on the show. Hopefully we'll have you on again soon. This was great. Thanks, Adam. It was great talking to you.